right. Uh, my name is Shane Hughes. I am the uh, preaching minister at the Highland Church of Christ in Abilene. And I want to talk today a little bit about a process that we engaged in about um, three years ago on a, it's kind of a, a, we called it a discernment. It was kind of a congregational level conversation uh, about the nature of women in leadership. And I realized that calling it an autopsy carries with it certain implications of metaphor that I um, did not think through clearly. And so, uh, <laughs> namely being death, uh, but I guess I wanted to lean more into the, the dissection and um, the cause, you know, more than necessarily the on a table with organs removed. Um, so there are some documents that uh, this was a discernment that obviously everything we do in churches is public, uh, but there were a lot of kind of internal conversations uh, that happened there. And so there's some things that uh, we're going to talk about here. Uh, there's other things that I can share with you, but I would prefer um, that you, you know, we, we protect the names of those that participated in this, namely because a lot of them work at ACU Abilene, uh, you know, they, and they have other uh, ministerial consulting jobs uh, that help them, you know, to do good work around the, the nation. And some of that would be tainted if, um, if they even entered into this conversation, because this is one of those conversations that are tough. So if, if there are resources I can share with you, uh, you can email me. I'm Shane at HighlandChurch.org, and I can uh, give you a data dump that has some of the resources we looked at. And further, uh, I'm going to try to give a high level um, kind of explanation of those things, and then we can have some time for questions and more conversation at the end. All right, so what, what we want to talk about today is, is process. And the thing that I, th I really want you to understand that in terms of discernment, especially congregational discernment, a healthy process is key to positive outcomes. And one of the, one of the kind of the, the truths that we, we tried to lean into is that even if a person uh, disagrees with the outcome, if they're able to engage in the process, they're more likely to be satisfied with con congregational unity. They're going to hang around longer and they're going to be less likely to kind of cause disruption if they were allowed to participate in a meaningful way. And so part of our strategy was to create a healthy process that allowed as much interaction and engagement as possible. Um, that said, I want to put a, you know, an asterisk there, but anyone who disagrees with the outcome is going to blame the process, regardless of how great you did it. And so uh, process is always going to be the thing that gets killed first when the conflict arises afterwards. And I think, you know, Scott Cormode and uh, some of those other kind of guys that really lean into what it means to do discernment and congregational change will tell you that unless there is some conflict at the end, one, your change may not be real. It may just be superficial, um, that it must, any real change must survive its first attempt of sabotage in order to be long lasting in a congregational context. And so you need to kind of lean into the fact, one to two things. Um, healthy process is going to ensure success, and if somebody disagrees, that's the first thing that they'll attack uh, because that's where they can kind of land. So in, in October of 2019, the Highland Church of Christ began a process to discern the role of women in church leadership. Um, this was um, what our question was. I'm going to talk about how we define the question in just a minute. Uh, the valuable resources for a healthy process, we found three things to be the most effective. Um, Ruth Harley Barton's book, Pursuing God's Will Together, is by far the best resource uh, to discern process. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Let me move all that for you. Sorry. Excuse me. Um, by far, uh, Ruth Haley's book is the, is the best 
uh, to engage in that. The second is um, these two ideas that really focus in on the key of the leader. Uh, the Emotionally Healthy Leader by Peter, Peter, Peter Scazzarzo um, really talks about that the most healthy thing you can do as a leader in your congregation is be a healthy you, right? The emotionally healthy you is the best place for you to be. And so we really tried to lean into allowing all of our leadership to, to kind of find that healthy place where they are able to be non-reactive presence. Uh, they're able to kind of keep their heads uh, when somebody blows up at them. And so how do we equip our leaders to engage in kind of those harder conversations together. Uh, and then the last is the prayer of indif indifference, and this is from the tradition of uh, St. Ignatius, or Ignatius of Loyola, which really tries to say like, I have, you're gonna admit, I have uh, a stake in the game, right? I have a, an, an interest in what's gonna happen, but it's, it's Jesus' prayer on the cross, not my will, but, but thy will be done, right? I'm gonna really try to lean into that prayer of indifference that. If it seems like the power of the Spirit and the will of the Spirit, the, the um, consensus of the congregation isn't going the way that I'd hoped, I'm going to try to lean into the fact that I'm indifferent about that. That I, what I want more than anything than my own way is, is the good of what the Spirit's doing in our community. And so these three resources, I think, were the most effective uh, for our leadership to really engage in what does it mean to be a healthy leader and how to engage in healthy process. Now we can come back to those and we can talk about that more in a little bit different. So the key findings that we found with healthy process uh, is to first narrow the scope as much as possible. And so you want to name the question that you're trying to discern as, as, as closely as you possibly can because this will prevent a spiral. Um, often with uh, questions of church leadership, there's a lot of emotions involved. There's a lot of personal history involved. Um, I had one elder that came up to me and, you know, uh, and said, you know, when I first became an elder, my deepest fear and my deepest, my deepest regret and my deepest joy uh, was that my father didn't get to see me become an elder and my mother did. Which is a curious thing to say. Being an elder had way more to do with than just serving a local church. It had to do with the history and the story of his family um, that his father didn't get to see it. And so when you begin to, to touch and affect those kind of key areas of what a person understands church to be, you have to realize you're, you're talking way more about just kind of like a, what does the text say about, this, uh, about the role of leadership in a church? Or, or how does the Holy Spirit make choices and decisions in the course of the Christian scripture? You're also talking about somebody's family of origin and the deep-rooted identity that they hold into this. And so what you want to do is try to narrow the scope of the discernment as much as possible because it allows you to limit the, the spinoff questions. Um, the obvious question about a hermeneutical shift in, in the role of women as elders, immediately in our congregation, the question said, well, what about LGBT? What about divorced people? What about people that are single and never celibate, uh, uh, single and never married? What, what about all of those people? And, and we were able to come back because we had narrowed our scope as much as possible to say, should spiritually gifted men and women serve as elders at this time at the Highland Church of Christ? Now, every phrase in that question limits what we're talking about. Should spiritually gifted men and women <clears throat> implies not everybody gets to be an elder, which is something we know is true. Uh, so we're defining what it is. Men and women means that we're not trying to do some sort of in-run around the nature of 
um, you know, men serving in leadership, which was an anxiety. Uh, that's an anxiety I think you hear a lot. If, if women are allowed the opportunity to lead, then men will automatically um, jettison the idea of any sort of participation in church at all. Um, at this time, applies uh, is another limiting factor. And then at the Highland Church of Christ, we are not making any statement beyond our own church and our own church body. Uh, we're not implying anybody else's church should be engaged in any other method. Now, I know at the times there's been um, churches that, you know, like they want to make a statement about the way it should be. And uh, that was not our intent. We were trying to ask contextual questions about our church at this particular time, which allowed us to avoid a lot of other questions that we didn't want to talk about, questions that would lead us uh, on rabbit trails that we didn't go. So narrow the scope as much as possible. The second is to count the cost. Um, I would strongly advise in order to have a healthy process, you need to realize that there are some people in your church that will not be comfortable with the decision and the outcomes, and they're gonna you're going to have to deal with them. Whether that's they're going to leave and you're going to lose them as key volunteers or key leaders or key givers, or uh, they're going to uh, cause disruption and it's going to cause pain and grief, uh, you have to count that cost. What was interesting about this discernment in particular is that counting the cost was not just for us uh, the potential loss of inaction, or not, not just the potential loss of action, but also the potential loss of inaction. Um, so not only are we trying to position ourselves to be um, scripturally relevant, accurate, and good readers of the text, but also what are we reading into our community? We're going to read our, our context as well as we read our scripture. And what's our context doing? What's happening in our context? And in Abilene, Abilene has the reputation of being a very church town. I mean, the joke is that, you know, like there's more churches per capita in Abilene than any other place in America. I don't think that's true anymore. And if you look at the church demographics of most of the churches in our city, um, there is a huge population that's 20 and 30 years old that have nothing to do with church whatsoever. They are silent in our cultural community, uh, and they do not care one bit. And so part of our uh, strategy and our thinking is we're going to count the cost not just of those who um, this is going to be a disruption for the church that they've known and loved for a long time, but also where does this put us missionally so that we can best reach our context in the right way. So count the cost. And then the last is to be able to clearly articulate the why. Um, you cannot control other people's assumptions about the motives. You can only communicate the motives you have. You can only com communicate them as clearly as possible. And so be able to clearly articulate the, why are we doing this? Is this because there's some rebel rouser that's trying to create trouble in the church? Is this because the elders have already made up their minds and they just want to do this sham process so they can get what they want? Is this because, and this is terrible timing, but it's just the way it turned out. You know, I, I arrived at um, Highland about four months before the elders <clears throat> began this process, which is terrible timing. I show up, all of a sudden this happens. Is this because Shane's here, right? Um, like, is he, is he pushing this? Is somebody have an agenda? So to, to be able to clearly articulate the why really matters. And that was something that Highland had to reach back into its history to say, no, you know, we've been talking about this for 25 years. And let me tell you other reasons why. We had an elder uh, nomination process about five years before this moment. They wanted to talk about three things. They wanted to talk about evangelism. They wanted to talk about what? It means to be a member of the Highland Church of Christ, and they wanted to talk about the will of women. And we've, we've covered member, now we're going to cover women, next we're going to cover evangelism. So being able to clearly articulate the why, it tamps down the assumption of motive 
uh, that others have, and that'll reduce anxiety in your, uh, to ensure a better process. Um, so the relevant history that you need to hear, in 2002, a gender sermon had determined that women and men can serve in all areas of leadership and worship, except for preaching, minister, and eldership. Um, and then preaching was, a, was an assumption in their statement that women would not preach. Uh, but women in 2002 began to serve in every aspect of public worship and service at the Highland Church of Christ. And then in August 2019, again, like that's one month after I got there, which isn't timing I appreciated, but it is what it is. Um, elders discern that gifted, spiritually gifted men and women can participate in all worship activities, including preaching. Uh, they felt that preaching was a, a bridge that was not too far for the majority of the con congregation and that they didn't really have to have a congregational conversation about it. They were right about that. Most of the congregation was absolutely ready for female preachers, female elders. Uh, they decided we're going to have to have a much more a deeper conversation about what that looks like. And so we began a timeline uh, and we... Uh, we had an announcement of the discernment. We decided to do church-wide classes on the topic. There are two kind of strategies that I think you can use to do healthy uh, discernment. One strategy is to say elders are going to do study. They're kind of going to go off on the mountain. They're going to make some decisions. They're going to come back and they're going to announce those decisions. Others is to say we're going to have conversations and teaching, a lot of interaction and listening in our congregation. Um, and so that people feel heard and people are able to kind of wrestle with ideas and then elders hear back from the congregation and make a decision. The first option of kind of elders making decision is wise in some contexts because what it does is it directs the entire ire of the congregation or the disruption back to the elders. If you have a congregational conversation, sometimes the ire isn't directed to the elders, it's directed at one another. Um, we, we decided, based on our context and where we're at, that probably the, the congregational conversation was going to be the most beneficial uh, for what we did. So we engaged in church-wide classes on the topic. Um, we engaged in listening sessions to hear from the congregation. Um, these were written. You could fill out, you could write a document and send it to the elders. They would read it. If you're an introvert or you're somebody that doesn't speak in public, uh, that was a great thing to do. They could be one-on-one. -on -one. You could schedule a time with a, a leader uh, to be in conversation where they would listen to you and we equipped our elders to do some reflexive listening skills so that they could make sure the other person feel, felt heard and understood. Then they would send a, a verbatim or a near verbatim of the conversation with the person to say, is this what you meant? Because this is what I heard. I want to make sure I understand you clearly. They could read it, edit, and send it back. Or we had small group communications. Um, those were groups of no more than 12. There's usually three or four church leaders in there. One was taking notes. The other two were doing practicing kind of group dynamics and listening. And it allowed different parts of the congregation to talk to one another. There are some rules about that. Uh, I can send you that if you're interested in that kind of data dump of you don't really talk to somebody else's ideas. You don't disagree with somebody else. You just say what you think. But we're going to be a place where you listen to one another. One of the things we found from the small group communications is that sometimes those got hot as emotions flared up in them. But for the most part, our people were mature enough to navigate that pretty successfully. Um, if you call your people to in a place, in a space, where you kind of set some ground rules to say, we really expect you to be emotionally mature, most of the time, most of the people are able to handle that. And if they weren't able to handle that, that was an easy conversation to say, hey, it looks like you're really feeling strongly about this. Why don't we have that one-on-one -on -one conversation instead? Um, but this allowed the, the church to hear from one another. And one of the things we saw in our follow-up kind of surveys and feedback was that that was a valuable extent to hear women, women in our, for men to hear women in their church 
talk about how it feels to be a woman who's not allowed into leadership. And for people to hear the stories behind, this is why I feel how I feel. I, I want to read scripture as faithfully as I can, and I just can't get past this moment. Um, I don't know how to, I don't know what to do with a hermeneutic that doesn't read scripture in kind of the command example necessary inference. I just can't get there. I love this church, but I'm having trouble with that. So it, it created in a lot of places pockets of empathy and understanding, uh, which helped us later on. Uh, then the last part of that, after the, um, the listening sessions were completed. The elders began their conversation with leaders. They began a, a season of pretty intense prayer, and then they had the discernment, the decision of what they were going to do. Now, I, my one advice, piece of advice to you about this is, you know, if, if you're going to do a major discernment that causes um, significant congregational anxiety, don't do it during a pandemic. Like, that's just, <laughs> that, was, that was a bad idea. And we began you know, this in October and November of 2019. And we finished stage three. The last listening session was one week before we had to shut everything down, um, which we were very grateful for. Um, that just, that was kind of the spirit making things happen. Um, and then we moved into the pandemic with the elder conversation happening. And the problem in that moment was one, we thought, hey, maybe this is just six weeks. It's just a blip and it'll be done. We had no idea what we were heading into in terms of a global crisis. Two, there was some elder anxiety about we want to look like we're still doing something about this. We don't want to look like we're just taking a, a vacation from our responsibility. Um, the other side of that was actually we have this kind of quiet space right now where we can do a lot of really good conversations together. You know, everything else is shut down. Everybody's got some time. This is a great time for us to have those conversations. However, as the elder conversation and uh, consensus, not true consensus, but consensus began to form, they realized that to move to the next phase, which is communication of the decision to the congregation, like pandemic is a terrible time to do that. Um, and they also knew that if they didn't get in front of the narrative, the narrative would slip out. You know, someone would talk to somebody who would tell somebody, and then the leadership loses the ability to control what's being said and how it's being heard for the first time. And so we were kind of caught in this pickle of being kind of forced to talk about it before the church had been able to regather. And so in uh, last Easter, uh, April 2021, right after Easter, we kind of got up and we did our announcement. But in Abilene, like the pandemic ended 18 months ago, I don't know what your context is in, we just, we were functionally done with it. Um, but Highland took a long time to come back. In fact, um, I think it was probably nine months before people felt comfortable coming back to the building. But when you hear that announcement and you don't agree with it, and you haven't been going to church for the last nine months anyway, and you've been shopping around like everybody else did, listening to sermons from other places, the, the, the uh, community tie that would have held you in was a lot <coughs> more threadbare which probably, I, I don't know what it cost us or what it didn't cost us, um, but it definitely had an effect. Um, one of the things we saw were small groups choosing to stay or small groups choosing to go in mass because their, their community had been over Zoom or in their backyards. And so they kind of made that decision. They found that consensus as a, as a small group and made a decision there. That was one of the consequences I think we had of our timeline, which was unfortunate. If you want to know what our church-wide class curriculum was like, now, given like ACU, so 
it's um, it's fun and very intimidating to preach at a church that has Richard Beck, Randy Harris, Mike Hope, <laughs> Jeff Childers, um, David Knight. But on the other hand, we have a ton of people that are really gifted in, in articulating community and theology. Um, so we these were the kind of the five topics we thought that were the most important. Uh, dis discerning the hermeneutical lens of scripture. Um, that was one, I mentioned a bunch of names, not all of those were these teachers. Uh, I'm just saying that there's a lot of resources at Highland. Uh, discerning the hermeneutical lens of the scripture um, is, is basically, do you use a command example, a necessary inference, or is there kind of another hermeneutic for you to decide? Because how you read scripture definitely informs this conversation. If you're looking for commands, then 1 Timothy and Titus are going to shout. And Acts uh, 15, which I think is the most important text in this conversation, is sounds virtually silent. Um, you don't hear Romans 16 at all, because it's just a list of names, as opposed to what the leaders of the first century church were. Um, and so we, we had to explain to our church that, you know, the Church of Christ hermeneutic, it does amplify some places of scripture while it depresses others, and that's not the only way to read scripture. And how do we approach scripture if that's not our primary lens? Uh, we talked about discerning through disagreement. We're not all gonna end up on the same page here. And some of us are gonna have different motives and different rationales for why, where we were. And how do we get together on that? How do we remain a body and, and, and preserve the unity of the spirit even though we disagree? Um, then discerning the function of elders at Highland. One of the things I was shocked about is that I grew up in a Church of Christ family that I'm probably three or four generations back. I know what elders do. Also, I'm an insider because I work there, right? I was shocked by the number of people at Highland who didn't really understand what an elder did. And they just kind of said, well, no, I mean, you're the pastor, right? You make all the decisions, right? <laughs> well, uh, not exactly, right? Uh, and so to, to even understand what a function of an elder was, and this was particularly true in our kind of 30 and under crowd. They didn't understand the function of elder, and when they realized that elders were only men, then they had a problem with it, uh, because they learned where the, the locus of power was, and it wasn't egalitarian. And so for us to explain actually what the function of an elder is, but then also to kind of say this isn't just locus of power, but this is also because of what we understand of Jesus is a role of service. And so power and service is a conversation that, that we needed to have. Um, we had a, uh, again, Jeff Childers, I can tell you this one, uh, he discerned, uh, I think it was like eight or nine years ago here at Highland, it was like Jeff Childers argues with himself about the role of women. We had him kind of dust that off, reimagine it, and then uh, do it, present it again. So we can hear from both sides. One of the things we tried to do was to present both perspectives. Uh, this was because one, the elders truly had not found uh, a place to rest on. In fact, they were they were divided at this point of what's, what was the best way forward of how to read scripture and then the pathway we should take. Um, and so we wanted, but we also wanted everyone to hear. Because for us, how to manage the disagreement, the polarities, you know, polarities can never be solved in churches, they can only be managed. How to manage the polarity was the question that we were trying to answer with our discernment process, being healthy. Um, and then we looked at Acts 11 through 16, is what a discernment looked like in the early church, um, namely, what do we do when the Spirit does something? Uh, looking at you know, Peter's vision and the, the Council of Jerusalem, figuring out, okay, actually what the Spirit is telling us is a fairly radical change, that Gentiles should be a part of not only the church, but also of the church leadership. Um, they need to be cared for and, and valued in the same way. So how do we, how do we, what happens when that happens 
when the Spirit speaks to us in a meaningful way. Um, there were like kind of three tipping points um, that I think really shaped our conversation in, in the discernment. This has been the elders' conversation. One of our elders said, when we get Jesus right, we will get women right. That was a frame, a lens that shaped the way that we think, um, which, again, turned the conversation from the commands that we felt like were obvious in First Timothy and Titus to how does Jesus interact with women? How does Jesus interact with uh, in this conversation? Um, the second was uh, an elder who's just simply said, there's no pathway forward for me if we decide to do this. Uh, and he was kind of just expressing his own grief that said, I cannot stay in leadership if I go here. This was an elder that was loved and cared, uh, loved and cherished uh, by Highland. And, um, and at that moment, the sense of the room tipped. And one of my staff members uh, who had been watching this very closely, she was a woman, she felt very deeply invested in the outcome of the situation. Um, that's, she made this comment. She said, when I heard that and I felt the room tip and I thought, this isn't, they're gonna say no. And her practice of leaning into the healthy work that Scazzaro had taught her and really leaning into that ignition prayer of indifference, um, the work that she had done, the spiritual disciplines and the soul work that she had done led her to the conclusion, this isn't gonna go the way I'd hoped and that's gonna be okay. And so for, our, for some members of our team that actually did the, the healthy discernment work, they felt peace at this moment. Um, and then there was a second tip, and it was in a, an elder conversation. There was this unlikely vision. It was nothing other than saying the power of the Spirit. And I, I'm not, I, you got to know, if you don't, I'm not like a hippy-dippy spiritual guy. Like, um, angels don't protect parking spaces for us. And, you know, that's just not the way I understand the world. That's not my worldview. And this was a, an elder who was a professor at ACU in the sciences, um, who was very skeptical about any of that kind of language and conversation. And he got up and he said, I cannot deny the vision that I had. And he told the elders what had happened, what he had seen. Um, that's not my story to share, so I'm not gonna share it in this room. And that was the second tipping point, which put it back. Because there were elders, because of that man's credibility, um, his service, and his dedication to Highland, uh, elders that said, I am against this, but I cannot deny what I just heard. Um, and so I'm gonna vote yes. Decision was not unanimous. Um, and that led to some conversations about how do elders have to manage their own feelings. Uh, the Highland Church has a covenant that says that when you walk out of the room, we are united in the decision we made. And that has served Highland for many, many years. Um, but the elders were not united on this. Uh, they, some elders asked to be let go of the covenant. Some elders offered to step down. Uh, the visual of having a lot of elders resign right after this announcement was pretty negative. And so some of those elders said, I will step down, but I'm not going to do it for a year and a half. I'm going to wait till um, women have been elected or I'm going to do it in six months. And some of that has happened. But they, for the sake of the unity of the church, they weren't going to do it as to be seen as a, a protest in that moment. But that's not to say that there weren't kind of uh, systemic problems. There were some hiccups and some systemic snapbacks. Um, I think uh, family systems theory is really valuable to think about how this works. Um, you know, a family system, a church system is probably the closest thing to a family system. Uh, I've got a, a 
co-minister in uh, Abilene that says that, you know, you, you will have a, a CEO show up uh, to become an elder or a banker show up to become an elder or a lawyer show up to become an elder. And you think these are the skills that we absolutely need. But when they get into that room, they cease to be their profession and they become a father because the church system, and they function like their dad or they function as they would with their kids because the church system isn't corporate. A church system is a family as a metaphor. And in family systems theory, what they'll tell you is that the, the, the system tries to, to always keep equilibrium and it will resist that change. And so what happens in a system is often there's what's called the identified patient. Um, it's the system will blame one kind of object, one person in the system as the problem in the system when that may not actually be it. It may be a child that's acting out in a family system. They may be kind of you know, acting out in terms of, of inappropriate behavior or inappropriate use of uh, you know, self-medicating in very different ways. The problem isn't always the child's behavior. Sometimes the problem is something else that's happening in the system, it's just that the child is kind of the one that's feeling the pressure of the system and they can't bear it. And so they've got to relieve that pressure and so they make a decision. The problem is not the child, the problem is that the system is trying to force equilibrium and it just can't do it. And so we had this moment. This was, um, it went viral and then in our panic to not be a negative experience of viral, we actually went into our YouTube and live stream and we changed it. But this is the original I want to share with you. The person I want to pay, you pay attention to is, is that gentleman right there. And let's make sure our audio is up. I think I'm good. The way forward no. will have challenges. Hang on just a second. No, I got nothing. Excellent. All right, give me just a second. You don't really have to hear the audio, but it would have been helpful. Um, this is our announcement discerning what it is, uh, what we've decided. And I'll just make this as loud as possible. The way forward will have challenges. And Scripture makes a positive case Watch. for inviting spiritually gifted women to serve as elders through extensive study. Did you and see it? The Holy Spirit, we believe that Scripture makes the case for allowing women to be elders. And one of our elders shook his head. He looks to the right and he says no. And it just—he did not intend to stand behind the 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 pulpit, the podium. He didn't intend to do that, and we didn't. We have shots, you know, as live stream like everybody else. Some of them are big and wide to show all of the elders standing up there at once. Some of them were close-ups. Some of them, even this angle right here, is slightly different. Um, and so it was just kind of this bad luck that. Um, it's important that you understand you why see. we made this decision. We believe that Scripture makes a positive case for inviting spiritually gifted women to serve as elders through extensive study. Yeah and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Of course, that got picked up by like social media, by, you know, that became like a GIF that got circulated, which we were thrilled about. Um, but I want you to understand what happened. That was 
uh, Todd Bolsinger will say every adaptive change must first survive the first attempt at sabotage. Any change you're going to make in a congregation, if it's going to attempt, survive, must survive somebody else trying to stop it. That's just the reality of what it means to do change in any system. But what didn't happen was the pressure release valve of our elders who weren't on board yet or who couldn't get on board to find a place to express that. And what that gentleman experienced was the pressure, the cross pressure of what it means to be an elder and the work that they've done for many years to serve a church. And the church was moving away from where they could be. And he's, he's up there because he wants to be a good team player. He looks at his wife's eyes. His wife knows the pain and struggle that he's been in, and he can't help it. And he, he releases the valve because that was the point of pressure in our eldership. And if, if we had created, the thing we did not do in this discernment was create a space for dissenting elders to express their grief in a meaningful way. And I'm not exactly sure what we would have done differently in that place. I just want to identify that's part of where it went wrong. Um, and every, all systems from families to congregations will inherently resist equilibrium and they will seek stasis. And that's what he was trying to do. And so that was the, that was the big system snapback that occurred. It was very public, it was unfortunate, uh, but it was what it was. Um, that gentleman stepped down as an elder uh, at about, about three months later, four months later. Um, but he is still standing in the uh, foyer every Sunday like he used to, uh, loving the people that come and go to that church. He's still serving. Um, he runs the PowerPoint, you know, the, the slide decks. He's still up there in our, our uh, tech booth serving the way that he's always done. Um, so he still has a shepherd's heart, and he still loves Highland. He just, he got pinched. So after our announcement, we had the congregational announcement and communication. One of the things we included, which I thought was a, a really smart move, and this is what I recommend, is we videotaped before this four elders with different perspectives. One of them that was for this move before it began had already had a hermeneutic that allowed it to happen and said, this is, this is why I think this is the pathway forward. We had two that changed their mind. One of them referenced uh, the vision that I spoke of earlier as a powerful means of changing. Others said, I studied scripture. I looked at the Bible. I realized that there's more in the New Testament about the role of women than I thought, and I changed my mind about what that looks like. And then the fourth was one, and this was probably the, a really good move because this is one of the pieces of feedback that helped preserve congregational unity. It was an elder that did not agree with this decision on the front end, was not convinced and voted no on the back end and chose to stay anyway. Um, this was one of our elders that had a lot of credibility with our congregation, particularly among those people um, that would, have, would wrestle with this. Um, and so that was a really good idea. That tamped down anxiety and it helped, again, for the congregation to hear itself. Um, second, um, we produced the why document. That's one of those documents I can give you if you'd like to see it, which kind of was kind of our two-page uh, high-level uh, summary of our hermeneutic and how that plays out in Scripture. Um, how do we wrestle with First Timothy and Titus, and what does that mean if we don't think that elders uh, need to be uniquely or solely men? And then the following, that afternoon after the announcement, we had a congregational meeting it was like kind of old school church where everybody came back at six, where we had a, another two of our trusted elders um, explaining the in-depth biblical and hermeneutical rationale. Um, and they, they kind of explained this is what it means forward. And again, that was, that was attempted to answer questions uh, that we predicted would come up, uh, but also just to kind of say, this is still the way it is. You know, this is still Highland. This is still a place that loves you and cares about you. And um, 
we're going to help you find the new, <coughs> the new path forward in the way that we're going. Uh, we also then uh, did individual pastoral follow-up with known anxious members and available times where anybody could come in and talk to an elder. If you wanted to, to cry, if you wanted to celebrate, if you wanted to ask some questions, they would be available for you. This is where those listening sessions became very, very valuable. We had over um, 450 people offer written submissions or show up to uh, listening sessions. At the time, that was maybe 25% of our church. Um, and so we knew 25% of our church's stances already. And so we had kind of organized them into Excel sheets and said, these are the people that are gonna be disappointed by this. This is based on their response, how disappointed they're gonna be you know, on a scale of one to five. And then we're gonna assign elders to reach out to them proactively. And so the listening sessions have provided us with some really useful data and how to do pastoral response and follow-up. And then we were able to kind of communicate, you know, just kind of uh, cross-talk and, and different elders were able to kind of have second visits and follow-ups. And some people said, this is a bridge too far. It's not what I can do. Uh, I need to find a different congregation. Others said, well, I'm going to think and pray about this. Um, they just need to be heard and loved. Um, others said, you know, I think that this is going to be okay and I'm, I'm not worried about it at all. Um, and so, so we kind of offered that pastoral care and follow-up. Uh, the aftermath, what I, which I think is probably what you're curious, one of the things you're curious about, um, we had a loss of about 25% of our people in weekly attendance after this moment. Um, now, whether that's pandemic or discernment is really difficult to say. Um, that's where the data is going to get real fuzzy. Because I think you know most churches say, well, we're down about a third. Um, we had a dip in our giving, uh, and that has been sustained. Uh, so some of those... Some of those folks, we counted the cost. Some of those folks that were uh, traditional in the way that they read scripture about women in leadership were also traditional about the way they read scripture and how they should give. Um, and so that was consistent. And so we lost um, not very many of our, our kind of high-level givers, but a whole swath of our kind of mid-level givers. Um, and that's caused a dip in our giving. And then um, we had an experience of grief that lasted about six months. Um, church wasn't the same because... Um, some small groups just disappeared. Um, some uh, were fractured, especially in our older generations. Uh, some of those classes were very disrupted. And they, it was just hard to come to church for them. And, um, but the other side of that is we gained about 10% of our, our weekly attendance in new people. Um, people that wanted to be a part of a church that saw uh, egalitarian leadership as a value. Um, I, I remember it was hard, like, and it's, it's hard when you show up, uh, you know, six months before this starts, that you're not uniquely responsible for this as a, as a minister. Half of that's ego and half of that's just kind of that sense of responsibility that you have when you're a pastor of a church. Um, to think, like, if I had done this better, if I had, you know, X, Y, Z, um, about, about four weeks after this, uh, two 20-year-olds found me after the sermon and said, uh, we're the reason you did this. And they haven't stopped coming. Uh, they've, been, they've been at Highland ever since. And so there's been some new people that come. And those new people, like the, the benefit of not just, they, they believe in our mission, they believe in the vision of the Highland Church of Christ, but also they're not tainted by the grief, right? They're, they're not sad like everybody else. That was a real boon for our, our people. Um, and the other side of this aftermath is that in the last um, six to 12 months, there's been new growth and new spirits. Um, and it's, uh, Highland is a different place. And we hear this even from our older, old timers. 
Um, they would say Highland is a friendly church now. Um, Highland wasn't known to be very friendly to outsiders, uh, because one in part, in part because it's so large, you didn't know if the person you were talking to was a brand new visitor or somebody who's been here for 25 years, they were just on the other side of the auditorium, you know, they went to a different service. And so everybody was really cautious to like greet somebody because you, you don't want to embarrass yourself or embarrass them by saying, oh no, I go here. Um, but now there's, it's pretty clear who's new. Uh, it's pretty easy to see that. And so Highland has become a welcoming uh, community and our hospitality has become a much higher virtue in our church. Um, and now we're dealing with new questions regarding implementation. Uh, our plan is to have our first new elder selection, which will include women. Um, hopefully our, our commitment is in 2022. We'll see what we do to get there. You know, it's coming up pretty fast. But we have been faced now because our, our elders weren't clear that we discerned an adaptive hermeneutical shift or a technical change. And again, I'm using Bolsinger's language there. Technical change is improvement. Adaptive is, you know, tearing apart the boat and building a canoe. You're going to do something entirely different. Um, and so the question that we're trying to discern as an eldership, as leadership now, is did we just say women replace men in First Timothy and Titus? Uh, so like if a woman can be an elder, does she need to be married with children and fit the rest of the categories? Or could a widow or a widower or a divorcee or somebody that doesn't fit all of these. Do you see what I'm saying? The hermeneutical approach would have said, we're gonna figure out what it looks like to be a leader in our context and our time based on the wisdom and the breadth of scripture. Or did we just say, add and women to First Titus and Timothy? And so in some ways, our discernment, uh, because we narrowed the scope, we didn't address if we were doing adaptive or technical change, which now we're kind of, and I gotta tell you, nobody has the energy to, to go back into that, right? Nobody wants to open that, that can of worms up because it's exhausting. There's still, there's still grief in the leadership. There's still, um, they're, just, they're just too tired to engage in that. I think that's the end of my deck, yeah. Um, any, uh, we have a little bit of time, so if you guys have questions or if there's some way I could um, help you, that'd be great. We have like, what, five minutes? Yeah, here in the next. If you send a email to uh, Shane at HighlandChurch.org, I will give you a link to a, a drive document that'll have the stuff that we'll have. Uh, it will be sanitized, um, and so I won't give you names, but it'll kind of give you the some of the documents. It includes the Y document, it'll include this deck, and a few other things I think will be useful. As you might imagine, we're going through this stuff. So. Yeah, I think every church in America needs to have this conversation, regardless of which way it plays out. I think that's right. In the back, and then we'll go here. Yes, that is a great question. The question was, uh, for those of you listening at home, did we discern that, it, that we were going to have shepherding couples or individual elders? Um, we, we decided that the best way forward is to ask for uh, individuals to be nominated. And then when a couple is nominated, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, because there's some power dynamic things there, kind of as a voting block that some are concerned about. I think that's just anxiety in the system. Um, but our experience of talking to those churches that have already made this shift is it doesn't really matter uh, whether there are, at least in a, in a church on our scale, in a smaller church system that may make a bigger difference. But.
Yeah. I think the nature of the question that we asked was not, can spiritually gifted couples serve as, um, as leaders of the church, even though functionally we've done that for well, 70 years. Sure, and I'll, I'll say one more thing about that before we move on. I think that um, the role of elder spouse is a role of soft power, um, which involves uh, influence, but not a lot of accountability sometimes. And so this actually can create a healthier family system because sometimes unaccountable soft power can really run amok without, um, and so this is gonna elevate those who are gifted to say, okay, this is, you have to stay in your lane now. Oh, let's go here and then, yeah. Yeah. So Shane, I wanted to ask a little bit about your uh, listening sessions and specifically the mm -hmm. small groups. What was the role or the presence of your existing eldership in those small groups? Were they all attended by like an elder that was acting as kind of a, a, of a sounding board or a moderator? Or did you have some that were like free of that to maybe have like, like yeah. yeah I don't good know, question. Was there, was there a difference there? Did you do both? I yeah, just, we tried to have um, three, three elders or leaders um, in, in each, each listening session. Okay. One was a scribe, one was the, the moderator, and the other was just, just there to pay attention and to back up the moderator if things got hot or if they kind of got themselves in a corner. Um, so just kind of back up. So we had three in most of them and four in, in a few just because we had enough. Um, one of the things about Highland is it's got 38 elders. And so we had a lot of resources there to, um, which is a whole different set because if, if we had women, that's like the ratio of elders to people is going to be crazy. But so we're going to cross that bridge too. That's a great question. Let's go here and then here. Yeah, you said that it was it was the right time to bring this subject up. Yes, sir. Over the years, what had happened before that to get to that point? Saying now is the time to do it. Right, like five years from now, what was the situation, the background of the church, so that that could happen at that time? I think. Um, you know, West, West Texas is a, um, it's a very traditional Texas community, um, and it carries with it a lot of traditional Texas values. Some of those are complementarian in nature about how households are run. Um, and so this was an unexpected occurrence, given the cultural context, except that ACU bringing with it its kind of own cultural milieu, environment, was, was bleeding into and shaping how... Highland understood itself. Um, some of those being expert theologians and biblical scholars. Some of those just kind of being people that um, cared about this. And, and that influence had, had um, fostered a conversation that occurred back in 2000, or I guess 1999 till 2002. And that conversation continued for 20 years. Yeah, I think it was just an environment. There were, um, there were some pretty strong advocates for this, and um, they had formed a, a, a social media group, a Facebook group, to talk about it themselves. Um, and so there was a conversation that was kind of happening off on the side, but honestly, I, I would articulate that as a very strong groundswell of new leaders that were being elevated into eldership in the last elder section selection. They cared enough about it that they wanted it to be one of the three things that they dealt with. Yes, sir. Uh, it sounds like the door has been opened partway with women 
big active in your services. Absolutely. The fallout, moving on to letting them in for full leadership, how did that compare to the fallout when the door opened up? I wasn't there in the in the first conversation. I get the sense that the first conversation, uh, in some ways, to say everything but preaching and eldering was compromise, to say this far and no farther. Uh, it was a way to kind of appease everyone. It's like, I think a lot of churches now, when they go to instrumental music, they go to two services, so you get to choose. So there's no cost. Um, you can't not you can't have a part of the church that doesn't submit to half of the elders. Okay, I, probably that exists in every church in America, but we didn't want to create a, a situation where that might occur. And so I think it forced uh, forced a decision. Um, does that answer your question? But, but the other side of that, which, I mean, I'm putting my egalitarian cards on the table, um, that the experience of hearing women speak the word of God, interpret the word of God, and stand as co-laborers on the platform, which is our, you know, that's, that's the place of authority in our church, um, shaped Highland in a meaningful way, right? Like that was formational for, for that church to begin to believe that, that that is a reasonable thing to do. And so I don't think for the majority of the congregation it was very anxiety provoking because they'd already gotten there in their hearts. Um, I don't know if that, does that answer the question? Yeah. So yeah. the the twenty years. Was the two step process a good thing, or would a one step process a good thing? I, I think it depends on how much runway you have. If you've got the ability to have twenty years of of, of gradual change, um, that might be the best way for your congregation. Um, we discerned that if we didn't do this now, there was a whole generation that we lose all of our credibility with, and it seemed right to us and to the Holy Spirit to do this thing now. It's just straight out of Acts. Let's go here and then back to Travis. Um, I'm going to make some false dichotomies here, but uh, I'm good at that too. Okay, good. So um, curious. This is a really wonderful, but also consuming process, both yeah. for your leaders and for your church's capacity mm -hmm. at large. And it's also can be perceived as a very internal conversation. And I know you guys be a very missionally driven yeah. church. How did you justify taking up this much capacity? Um, for everyone involved, even though it is a hugely significant conversation? And how did you also keep your church engaged with the larger mission and vision, even as you're having this conversation that's internal? Yeah, and in some ways, I think the pandemic might have helped us with that because everything else was shut down. And so, um, but the, the, the process that we did immediately after this announcement, we turned straight to mission. Um, and we, we hit that for four months in, in sermons and in, um, kind of offering thoughts in all of our communication, we began talking about what Highland is doing because we, we did, we did not want to end up navel gazing and, you know, kind of, or what's the next thing we want to change about ourselves to make us more what I like. Um, we really wanted to push ourselves out of that place. And we have, we've tried to keep that focus pretty intently um, throughout because I mean, honestly, the, the reason why, in a, in a context like Abilene, where there's a lot of choices, the reason why a person would choose a church is because they believe in the vision of that church. And so we want to remind them that the vision is still gospel. And that's, that's a great question. Here in the Beck Travis. So you, you mentioned your timing when you came. Speak yeah. some to the intent 
intentionality of when you were the mouthpiece or the guy uh, and Shepard, all the stuff with Shepherds. What role did you play? What came from your mouth? Yeah. Agree, was that intentional and would you do it the same over again? I mean, you're, you're normally communicating all the vision, but in this, it looked like it was mostly Shepherds. Yeah. I, um, I had very little of this, to be frank. I, I, was, I was keenly aware of my lack of credibility that wasn't just a gift because I hadn't been there long enough to earn it. Um, and so I was, I did not teach one of those classes and I did not speak any of these announcements. I did, I did say I am excited about this conversation and I am excited about Highland's process. Um, so I, I kind of offered my support where I could, but I wanted to be very careful. One, because this discernment is not what I'm at Highland to do. Like I didn't come here to, to start this conversation I'm not going to leave after it's over. You know, my, my tenure at Highland is about the life of the church. And so that's where I wanted to keep my purpose engaged. And then at the, the announcement Sunday um, last April, I did kind of preach a sermon that talked about the hermeneutical lens that allowed us to get there. Um, and I, frankly, I would have been comfortable if they had said no. Um, I, that's not my whole... My whole career, I've been in churches where I don't agree with everything that the church was with. I think most ministers would tell you it's a luxury to be a part of a church that's aligned with your own kind of personal interpretation of scripture. And so I've lived with that dissonance for my whole life. So it would have been okay. And that I think the nation practice really helps me live into that. Um, but it was important to me that my boys grow up in a church that, that have that experience. Travis, then go. So... Um, just kind of coming back to this family and systems be, theory. Be yeah, yeah, coming back to this family systems theory idea. How did you keep it personal? Like, we're, we're like, okay, we're talking about people here. We're not just talking about my opinion versus your opinion. Yeah. We're not going to let it spiral off into the theoretical. Like, I know the listening thing was part of that, but like, what were the tools and tricks or the, the tactics that, you, that the leadership used to make sure it's like, okay, so we're not just talking about a person. We're talking about these people that you love. Like, yeah. What did you do there? Yeah, we wanted to be real careful about that because we didn't want to use, um, like, like what I just said. I want my, I mean, kids to grow up in a church. You know, somebody getting up to say, I want my daughter to grow up in a church. You know, she's just as valuable to Jesus as, as your son. Um, that's true, but that's also really pulling on those pathos strings mm -hmm. in a way that people that are resistant to that would say, okay, now you're being manipulative. Um, and so one of the tactics we did was uh, during the listening session series, um, we just took quotes from what different people said or what they wrote, and we put them in a, in a document and we had readers read them on a video. We provided the text. So it's just kind of like a YouTube text uh, video where people could just hear. And we were fair to conclude about the same balance of ideas and like really good points um, to allow just people to listen to each other. Um, that was, that was probably, and we wanted to be real careful that, because um, personal testimony in this place is useful, but that's not the only criteria that some people are looking at. Because for them, it's the text. And they feel like fidelity to the text is the most important thing. Okay, Gilbert, last question. So, talking about the text, yeah. uh, it feels like our go-to and our heritage has always been, let's educate people into, a, yeah. into change. My experience has been that with big issues like this, educating people into the change doesn't work because for a lot of people, as much as they want to say it's logical and reasonable, it's more 
emotional attachment. Absolutely. Um, so how productive do you think the church-wide classes were in helping people move along or, well, just leave it back. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the church-wide classes created, set the table where people had the freedom to talk about it, whether it's talking to their spouse or talking to their small group. Um, after each class, uh, every small group in the church, every class was given a, 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 a list of discussion questions that they could follow up with. And I think that's where the real work was done. Um, because I think the most influence was not necessarily the, although we had some really incredible teachers, uh, was the person that you've done life with the last 20 years saying, I think this is the right thing to do or I can't handle this. Um, I, I do think that part of um, hearing the voices of women regularly in our service probably did a lot more to shape people's understanding of this. Because, like, I mean, I graduated from grad school with a, a belief that women should fully participate in worship in every way. Um, and I fully believed, I like an advocate of that. This is, I'm going to make this argument. And I remember sitting down at a church and I'm, you know, reading the bulletin before it starts. And a woman's voice is on the PA doing announcements and my neck just snapped up. Like I was fully on board with what was happening. But the reality of it was so jarring that it took me a minute to live into it. Uh, so I think allowing ourselves to live into that of women doing uh, real leadership in every position, save elder, uh, a staff that has a very diverse, um, is very diverse in terms of men, women and men, kind of it showed us that actually the spirit is moving in this way for us, not for every church, but for us, that it seems right to us and the Holy Spirit to make this decision. Thank you all for being here. I appreciate your time.